guys, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Mike, and thank you for joining me for this episode of Amateur Outdoors. If you like what you hear, we would very much appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review on whatever platform you listen. You can also follow us on Twitter at OutdoorsPod, or email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at theamateuraltourspodcast at gmail.com. Now, in a recent episode, Brian and I reevaluated this show and how we've changed in the last three and a half years since we've been doing the show. In that episode, the topic of favorite directors inevitably came up, and my answer has certainly changed in the last few years, or even since my love of movies began. When I started venturing into film so many years ago, I was enamored by directors like Tarantino, Nolan, Snyder, and Romero. Their films allowed me to experience the wonder and gripping power of cinema, and have since left a profound impact on me. And as I've grown older and experimented in filmmaking myself, more nuanced film directors have entered my eye. Filmmakers like Scorsese, Coppola, Johnson, P.T. Anderson, Kurosawa, Winding Refn, Lynch, the list goes on and on. But all of them have been adding to my appreciation of cinema as a whole. Now this being said, there is one man who has left an impact on me so profound, I aspire to make films like him. His artistry can be matched by few, and his themes and commentaries have been explored in literature and film alike. His name is ubiquitous with descriptions of meticulous, calloused, and poignant. That man is Stanley Kubrick. To touch briefly upon Kubrick and segue into the film we will be talking about today, Kubrick is my favorite director. For his particular attention to detail throughout all of his films is nothing short of fascinating and enthralling. The true passion Kubrick shared towards the craft of filmmaking is inspiring and something that everyone can learn from. He was famously eccentric and infamously demanding, and to drive this point home, here is one of my favorite descriptions from an actor on working with Kubrick. So when asked about his time working with Kubrick, the first thing that a 101-year-old Kirk Douglas could recall was, well, I'll let him say it. He was a bastard, but he was a talented, talented guy. All that being said, my first Kubrick film was the film we will be talking about today, Full Metal Jacket. Now, the story behind me seeing this film is kind of funny, and as all great movie stories go, I was way too young to be seeing this film, so I was probably around 11 or so. The reason I watched Full Metal Jacket was because I was trying to find a copy of Platoon. Now, again, another film I probably shouldn't be watching at that age, and I was looking through my older brother's DVD collection while he was at college. Now, funny enough, he was at a military school. I ended up finding the platoon case, but there's this film, Full Metal Jacket, in there. Now, I didn't know what it was, so I just threw it in there, thinking it was the same thing. And I put the movie in, and well, to say the least, I did not know how to process it. Now, before going into the film of Full Metal Jacket, I want to delve a bit into the short novel that Full Metal Jacket is based on. Now, Kubrick was known to base his films off novels in some capacity, and Full Metal Jacket was no exception. Short Timers was published in 1979 by Gustav Hasford as a means of coming to terms with his experience as a war correspondent in the Vietnam War. Now, I read this in the summer of 2018, and I had to read it as a PDF online because the novel is extremely difficult to find, for it is now out of print. And I don't want to get into the spoilers of the book, for although there's a lot of similarities between the two, especially in the dialogue, 
there's some pretty monumental changes that occurred in the adaptation process, and I feel that it slightly alters the themes of the overall story. What I will say about the book, though, is that it is an extremely quick and fantastic read, and I highly recommend it. Short Timers is divided into three sections. The Spirit of the Bayonet, which details the hellish experience of Marine Corps boot camp to prepare for war. Body Count, which details the interactions Joker has between the different soldiers and squads and correspondents he runs across while in Vietnam. And Grunts, which details Joker's integration into Cowboy Squad after leaving Hugh City. It is worth noting that the film heavily draws from the first two sections of the novel while splicing in moments from the third throughout. Short Timers expertly conveys the horror of war and the psychological impact it has on those that fight. Violence is second nature to these men, almost the next logical progression of the problem-solving process. The acts performed are sickening and horrible, but Hasford suggests that these men are products of the government that molded them into psychopathic killing machines. The novel was filled with powerful imagery as well as themes related to masculinity, violence, and war. I can completely understand why it captured Kubrick's attention, and any fans of this film, or war literature in general for that matter, should check this out. PDFs are available online for free. All you have to do is just search for short timers PDF into any search engine, but Google works out the best. Now switching attention to the film, Full Metal Jacket was released in 1987, starring Matthew Modane, Vincent D'Onofrio, Lee Ermey, Adam Baldwin, and Dorian Harewood. Now, if my research is correct, the film took Kubrick roughly two years to write the screenplay, film, edit, and release as a completed picture, which is considered pretty uh, a pretty quick turnover for a Kubrick film. Once released, the film received fairly mixed to positive reviews, although some, including Roger Ebert, did not like the film, often finding it not as compelling as films like Apocalypse Now or Platoon, which I'm going to touch on that note a little bit later on. But despite this, the film has grossed over $120 million since its release and has sparked debate about the quote-unquote duality of man and war debate. Now before we get into all that, let's talk about the film on a technical level. Now as per any Kubrick film, the filmmaking is gripping, intense, meticulous, and immersive. From Paris Island to the military base to the war-torn streets of the cities, every detail is accounted for. Of course, this is expected from the likes of Kubrick. Every camera angle, every edit, every piece of set design was chosen to be where it was. By the late 1980s, filmgoers grew a little bit more accustomed to the style of Kubrick and the insanity he derives from his images, which also appropriately fit the themes of this film. Casting was superb, with knockoff performances all around, but especially from Modane, D'Onofrio, and of course, Ermi. All in all, everything works in this film for me. The acting, the camera work, the music cues and choices, the sets, the themes, etc, etc. But there's that word again, themes. I keep mentioning it over and over and over again and how impactful they are. But just what are these themes that I'm talking about? Well, remember that point about when Roger Ebert claimed that this was the weaker link in a string of Vietnam films of the time? He essentially said that Full Metal Jacket isn't as compelling as, say, Platoon, Apocalypse Now, or Born on the Fourth of July. Well... I couldn't disagree more with Mr. Ebert's remark on this, for while Fullmetal Jacket doesn't have the characters that you necessarily root for, and actually, you kind of hate them all, which is kind of the point, and it also doesn't explore the war-torn, hellish nightmare that was the Vietnam jungles, 
Kubrick is able to deliver a commentary about the brainwashing and stripping of identity of young men so that they are turned into killers. I think the issue is that many viewers get lost in the setting and the history of the film that they completely miss the messages that Kubrick is trying to get across to his audience. Full Metal Jacket isn't so much a Vietnam War film as it is a Kubrick film set during the Vietnam War. The film doesn't want to focus on the morals of fighting an unpopular war, but rather focus on the humanity of those fighting it. From the very beginning, the men are subjected to physical and emotional abuse from the drill instructors at Paris Island. Never are we given the true identities of the men, but rather nicknames that the instructors or other recruits have given to each other. So right out of the gate, our characters have no identity. They are mounds of clay that Kubrick molds as his story progresses, almost like how the instructors mold them into the battle-ready warriors. The tragedy of Leonard Gomer Pyle Lawrence is that of a recruit broken down so much that he is driven to madness, homicide, and suicide. But what is most fascinating about this character is that it is only when he is brought to the brink of madness does he excel at being a marine a cold, emotionless killer. Now, the death of Hartman and the suicide of Pyle is the first smack of reality that this film presents before going into Vietnam. And once there, the soldiers that Joker surrounds himself with are nothing but loud talkers and bullshitters, and Joker is included in this mix. Joker is a walking contradiction in that on his helmet he is written born to kill, but also wears a peace symbol. Now whether this be a sick joke or a comment on the duality of man, this idea of being a masculine psychotic killer is what these men aspire to be, but the moment that combat rolls around, they turn into the boys back at Paris Island, scared shitless and powerless to the events surrounding them. Now, I want to briefly talk about the ending of the film where the epitome of Kubrick's masterful filmmaking culminates to the point where the squad of surviving soldiers stands over the dying body of the sniper. This scene is extremely important in the context of the themes of humanity for these characters, for as the sniper lies dying, there are disagreements whether she should be left alone to die a slow, painful death as revenge for killing members of the squad, or if she should be put out of her misery because of a sense of pity. What's extremely interesting in the scene are the role reversals that occur. Animal Mother, a gung-ho killer, wants to leave the sniper without killing her, while the pacifist Joker wants to kill her to spare her a painful death. And there is also that the sniper is indeed a woman, almost flipping the entire commentary relating to masculinity and violence on its head. The realization that if Joker wants to get his way, he will have to literally pull the trigger is an emotional struggle that takes all of his will to commit. Now when Joker finally pulls the trigger, and Raptor Man and Animal Mother laugh at his struggle, this solidifies the idea that these deranged, brainwashed killers fare better in war than do the rational and grounded men like Joker and Cowboy. It's a pretty impactful message to leave the viewer with as the men continue their march into the night singing the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse theme. So guys, with the wrapping of the themes and messages up, I think I'll move on to my closing thoughts and final recommendations. While Full Metal Jacket isn't my favorite Kubrick film, it is still a true testament to how great of a filmmaker Kubrick was. The casting was superb, the music choice is fitting, the camera work fantastic, the editing is near perfect in my opinion, and all paired with the powerful and contemporary theme. It is for these reasons that I'm going to give Full Metal Jacket an 8.5 out of 10. It's clearly a film that everyone should go see if they haven't already. 
So with that, guys, that concludes this episode of Amateur All Tours. It's a little bit on the short side, and hopefully when Brian and I do a Kubrick uh, retrospective, we can definitely come back more to this film and, and expand upon it. But I feel like I just kind of scratched the surface level of what this film can offer. But as always, thank you again for listening and supporting the show. Per usual, you can follow us on Twitter at AuteursPod, email us at theamateurauteurspodcast at gmail.com, and if you could, it would mean so much to both Brian and I if you could leave a rating and review on whatever listening platform it is you listen to the show on. And with that, we'll see you next time, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Amateur Tours. Cover design was created by Sarah Jacobs. You can find more of her work at our own site and Instagram, Digital Adventures. Opening and closing theme, Dreams, was created by Joachim Karid, which was found using a Creative Commons search. As a small plug, go check out both Joachim's and Sarah's work. They really deserve it. All content discussed and shown is the property of their respective owners and is used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We are working hard to bring you all new content and episodes. So thank you again, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.